This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We recorded this edition on February 1st, 2019, and we'll be in conversation with Dr. Anna Dini Morales, who has written our reimagining of La Verbena de la Paloma, one of the world's most famous zarzuelas, and has recreated it as La Paloma at the Wall. We'll be discussing this brilliant new treatment, the reasons behind it, and what has gone into making it. The production opens March 23rd at Gala Hispanic Theater and plays through March 31st. And outreach events include our free director salon at the Mexican Cultural Institute on March 11th at 6.30 p.m., where we'll have the creators of this piece in conversation with experts on border politics and the experiences and cultures of those who live at the U.S.-Mexican border every day. On March 10th, we'll also be sponsoring a free Fandango public event. This is a traditional community music and dance event, and we'll be explaining more about it in the weeks to come. It'll be right here in DC's Columbia Heights neighborhood. Over the next several weeks leading up to the show, we'll be embarking on a massive campaign to examine the form of zarzuela, how it can be made relevant, and reflective of contemporary experiences and what makes this project so special. We'll be creating audio, video, and literary content to help our audiences dig in deeper to this project and its process, so stay tuned for that. One particular aspect of this project I want to mention is our collaboration with the Latin American Youth Center right here in DC. The piece is set at the US-Mexican border on the Tijuana side, and the border fence there at Parque de la Amistad is heavily decorated on on the Mexican side. On the American side, it's it's very plain and austere. Uh, but we wanted a chance to depict the, the murals and uh, to examine the power and meaning of Chicano-Chicano border mural art. Uh, so we've collaborated with the Latin American Youth Center and uh, two of their resident artist teachers to work with students to uh, express their own experiences of immigration. These are first and second generation um, immigrant students uh, who, who are participating in the art course at the Latin American Youth Center. So they'll be designing, uh, creating the mural art that we'll put onto a representation of the border wall that'll be our set for this project. We couldn't be more excited about that. A couple days ago, we recorded this conversation with, uh, with Anadini Morales. You'll hear that I have a, a cold, uh, I still have it now. I had it even more then. Um, I'm just getting over it. So my voice is a bit raspy. It's a long conversation, but we really dig into what her inspirations were for making this piece. We just started rehearsals uh, on the evening following this interview. They've been going fantastically well. It's a really exciting uh, young cast, some in-series family members, some folks who are new to us. Uh, I couldn't be more pleased with the mix, and I'm looking forward to the production. I hope you'll join us for it. Now here am I in conversation with Anadini Morales about La Paloma at the Wall. Okay, with me today I have Professor Anadini Morales, uh, who is uh, on the board of the in-series, who did the um, treatment last year for our uh, Cecilia Valdez. Um, which we paired with Maria Lao, and uh, who has, is the brains and the creative force behind La Paloma at the Wall. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much, Timothy. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's our, um, I, I find the work you've done to be remarkably beautiful and, and deeply meaningful in, 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 in this time and in any time, actually. Um, I think to really understand the scope of what you've done, I think it's important to 
understand what the original piece was, La Verbena de la Paloma. Um, and uh, if you could maybe tell tell our listeners a bit about about what this most famous zarzuela was to begin with. La Verbena de la Paloma was first performed in 1894 in Madrid. It was written, so the libretto was written by Ricardo de la Vega, and the score was written by Tomás Breton. The story is that Tomás Breton wrote this score in 19 days. And the music is quite beautiful. It became a very, very well-known zarzuela. In fact, it's probably the most famous and iconic of the Spanish zarzuelas. What I found most interesting about this work um, were two things in particular. First of all, the three of the main characters, Don Hilarion, which is an elderly pharmacist, and then two young women, Casta and Susana. This story of these three characters, Breton and Ricardo de la Vega took this story from the book of Daniel, which is an apocryphal work of the Bible. And the original story in Spanish is called La Casta Susana, and in English it's called Susana and the Elders. And this is basically the story of two elderly judges who end up spying on a young woman named Susana. They decide together that they're going to force her to sleep with them and accuse her of adultery if she doesn't sleep with them. She decides because of her faith that she will say no, and she's also married, she decides because of her faith and her marriage that, that she'll say no and she'll risk being put to death um, for this false accusation. When the men are accusing her publicly, a young Daniel comes forth and says, why don't we cross-examine these judges separately? At that point, they realize when they're cross-examined separately that each is lying because each says that she is standing below a different tree, so their stories don't coincide. What was so fascinating for me about this biblical, the original biblical story, is first of all the story of faith, of Susana's faith, but also the story of having to continuously revise how we're keeping people in power in line. So these men, they're not only older, so they're part of the, the fabric of a society over time, but they're also part of the legal fabric. They're at the center of the legal fabric of this society. And Daniel's intervention is basically to say, um, we, we have to continuously look at how we're holding people accountable for power. The other really interesting part of the story is the title itself, La Verbena de la Paloma. La Verbena de la Paloma is a festival, one of the most important, if not the most important, religious festivals in Madrid, which is dedicated to La Virgen de la Paloma. La Virgen de la Paloma was a, the figure of a virgin of solitude that was found in the trash on a street called Paloma in Madrid in the late 18th century. And this figure was taken out of the trash by a woman and cleaned up and placed in her home. And it turned out that she started to produce miracles. So this amazing festival and cult developed around this virgin that eventually became La Verbena, the, the fiesta or the festival of La Paloma. 
What's so fascinating is that first of all, she was taken out of the trash and cleaned up and used again. But then also what the Virgin of Solitude within the iconography of Mary represents. The Virgin of Solitude is Mary after her son has been put to death. She goes to a cave and closes the stone of that cave to be alone. And so that figure of the mother who's solitary, whose child has been taken away or put to death by the state and, and, and needs this solitude, that, that figure of Mary really, really moved me. And I felt that it's only captured in the title of the piece, but not captured explicitly in the narrative of the piece. When I realized um, that there's a character in the original work that doesn't have a name but is a gypsy from Andalusia, from a town named Chiclana, it occurred to me that this could be the character that we made into Paloma in this new work. Right, so one of the, mo one of the more brilliant master strokes that you came up with was oh, to create an, a new character, sort of a new character, yeah. or to take an existing character from the original and fill her out into a more developed character that you've called Paloma. So, yes. so the Paloma, the title, is no longer just in conjunction to, to this festival, but rather uh, is, a, is the centerpiece of the whole, the whole uh, endeavor, actually. Yes, so now that figure is the centerpiece of, of, the, new, of the new work. I think, if, if I can cut in, yeah. I think uh, for, for those of our listeners that really know a lot about Zarzuela, um, uh, which Zarzuela is a new thing for me, it's, it's been one of the joys of been discovering Zarzuela this year, uh, my time at the series. but for those that are really familiar with it, they think of it as a lighter form of a, um, as the Spanish equivalent to operetta or the opera comique in Paris, uh, and they'll be surprised that our conversation is is alluding to themes of, of such such depth and, and seriousness. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, what fascinated me, again, getting back to the original 1894 piece, is that the work in itself alludes to these two stories. So Breton and uh, Ricardo de la Vega decided to use this festival as the centerpiece, as, as, the, as the moment and the time and place when this narrative is going to take place. And the narrative they chose is actually quite a serious narrative. And that narrative has several different paths that it takes in the visual and musical arts. One of the paths is in the painting, in paintings like Artemisia Gentileschi's painting called Susanna and the Elders, in which she very, clear, very clearly shows two elderly men trying to um, rape a young woman named Susanna. The other path that uh, Breton and De La Vega's uh, piece takes, takes form, or the other path that this story takes is a, is a comic path. Um, and it's repeated several times in works throughout Europe and also in film in Latin America. And that takes the character of Susana and makes her into a comic character. So it makes her into a character who perhaps publicly is chaste, but privately is very promiscuous. Uh, what, would, what was interesting for me in this work was to 
read very closely De La Vega's text and also listen very closely to Breton's music and notice the moments in which they themselves are actually quite ambiguous about how they're feeling about the work. So ostensibly on the surface, it seems like a very light work. Once you start digging behind the paint of the work, you realize that um, they're talking about class differences. They're talking about they're talking about class differences, for example, in the relationship between Don Hilarion, who's the elderly man, who who it's not clear whether he's paying for or how he's establishing a relationship with two young women who are now Casta and Susana. So that's actually supposed to be very comic. Then there's an older woman named Antonia, and it's not clear what her relationship is with Casta and Susana, and, but she seems to be selling them or brokering the relationship between Hilarion and these two young women. The Tia Antonia within the Spanish theatrical tradition um, really is, is her, her history is as this figure called La Celestina. And La Celestina was always an elderly woman who didn't have a whole lot of good luck around her. Her aura wasn't a good one. And it was never clear as a matchmaker whether she was selling young women or what, what exactly was going on in those situations. So Breton and De La Vega really bring up all these characters that have quite dark undertones, even though in this situation, at the surface, they're perceived as very light. Um, so it was at the moment in which you, Timothy, said, let's put this at the Mexico-US border. Um, which is something we haven't brought up yet. Yeah, either, so, so. so you suggested to do that. My original yeah. request to Anna was that we set this piece um, at Friendship Park, which is the park between um, San Diego and Tijuana on the U.S.-Mexican border, um, and and all the the things that you're now talking about uh, with the history of Breton and De La Vega's mm -hmm. composition, I didn't know then. Mm -hmm. I simply read the piece and thought it had the appearance of a um, sort of Spanish version of Street Scene, which mm -hmm. is a which is a uh, a Broadway show by by Kurt Weill, where mm -hmm. where the narrative is actually quite weak, mm -hmm. but it paints a picture of what a, a city block in Brooklyn would be, or in, in New York. Um, and I had heard a story on the radio 15 years ago about people on both sides of the border that meet at 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 the wall. Um, and have very mundane, everyday sort of interactions. They say mass. They say. They sing songs to their kids. They they um, have conversations about what they did that week, um, and the only thing that makes it unusual is they're split by a wall. And at that time, I thought it would be very interesting to do a street scene set at the U.S.-Mexican border at a wall. Mm -hmm. And then when I I read this piece, I thought maybe this is the time and the right piece to adapt in this way. Uh, so I I came to you with mm -hmm. that bare proposal, mm -hmm. and. Um, now, now maybe you can talk about what you did. What you did with that? Well, so that was that's really extraordinary because as I was doing my research and um, I was looking at different ways in which people had adapted the story of Susana and the elders in the past hundred years, several hundred years, and um, I came upon Handel's oratorio called Susana, which I believe is like from 1742. It's an early Handel. 
uh, oratorio. Yeah. Yes, and it was striking to me that Handel emphasized through a choral framing of the story. He has this beautiful choral work right at the beginning that says, how long, O Lord, shall we be enslaved? So Handel really emphasizes that this story of corrupt older judges taking advantage of a young woman, um, that this story occurs within a context of the displacement and enslavement of the Jews. And so that lends itself perfectly to the border regions in which over several hundred years, we've had this history of first the Spaniards coming in in the late uh, 15th century and um, enslaving the indigenous populations in these border regions. And then just over time by the mid 19th century, um, the US continuously pushes the frontier, takes over those regions finally in the 1840s, and, and really slowly starts to create illegally enslaved populations through um, programs like the Bracero program, through different types of programs that are, are bringing in populations in order to work in, in, um, in large farming communities, not only in California and Texas, but throughout the United States. So that story of enslavement and displacement of the Jews over several hundreds of years, that, that story really lent itself to the stories of the border regions. And there is something also that's very interesting that actually there were musicians, for one in particular named Manuel Areo, who actually performed with Breton in his early years and then moved to Cuba and then moved to Mexico. And for several, several decades until his death, I believe in the 1950s, um, he performed Sarsuela throughout all of those regions, particularly when it was a very, uh, a much more fluid um, zone through which to navigate. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that Although Breton and um, De La Vega don't refer to this directly, these are the years in which Spain is about to lose its remaining, what's left of its empire in Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. It's 1894, and Spain is really just bleeding at every single edge of its, of its body. And so the Spaniards are really struggling themselves as a population. A lot of them have moved to Madrid, so a lot of the people who would have seen this work weren't even necessarily from Madrid. So they were already people who were displaced. And so I think that in the figure of the gypsy, who in our work ends up being Paloma, that those, those all of these original themes that were in these stories in the first place, in the story of Paloma and the story of the Virgin of Solitude, the story of Susana and the elders, all of these stories lend themselves very well to our border regions, and, and particularly the, what we're going through now um, with a desire to more aggressively shore up and, and cut the continent in such a way and, and cut what our relationships and families who have been in these regions for, well, since the beginning of time, really. so. The specificities that you um, developed in terms of Paloma as a character are very um, 
compelling and topical. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about um, about what you've done with this mm-hmm. character that you sort of created from scratch, other than one song she sang in the original, and um, why you made the choices that you made, or, or, or what was the process of, of having her evolve within your mind? Well, so Paloma in the contemporary story, in Paloma at the Wall, is a woman who has come from Guatemala, uh, and right now um, we have a, because of the crises, political and economic crises in, in, in Guatemala, um, uh, many people from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, Honduras are coming up to our region right now through the Mexico-U.S. border. I wanted to underscore the complexity of different experiences of different regions in Latin America and different immigrant experiences. Because in fact, even though President Trump would like us to think that the number of immigrants has actually increased, the number of Mexican immigrants, that that number has actually decreased. So really what we're seeing now are immigrants from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So this woman is from Guatemala. She speaks a language called Maya Cacchiquel. And so that's another thing is that we think of these people as generally Spanish speaking, but they're actually from many, many different cultures and many, many different languages, languages that are original to these regions. Um, So she comes up to, um, through, a Texas border point and her daughter is separated from her. And then in her effort to seek help, she goes to San Diego to find family and then finally goes to border um, agents and actually asks to find her children or her daughter and then for help finding her daughter. And then she's escorted back through the San Isidro entry point and stays in Tijuana. What I wanted to emphasize here is, first of all, her voyage. So, and the the extent to which individuals who travel either from Guatemala or even just from different regions in Mexico, the extent of their suffering and how, as a society, we have this idea that, well, they chose to do this, these were individual decisions, and, and so that's, you know, what they get. And really, these are decisions that are communal decisions, they're decisions forced upon them because they have no other choice um, to put themselves and their children in in these perilous situations. And and so I I wanted to emphasize that that travel experience. So I listened and read, I listened to a lot of testimonies and I read a lot of testimonies about that experience. so that's part of the, the creation of her character. What fascinates me about Paloma is that despite all she went through, having to leave Guatemala, having to pass through these different points in Mexico that are very difficult, what is most difficult and horrific is that her child is taken away. That's... that's um, I see that as a human rights violation. And um, so, so that's really the culmination of, of what happens to her. And obviously, I'm equating it to 
uh, this Christ figure when you know Mary has her her child taken away from her by the state, and Mary herself and her husband were were displaced people who were themselves refugees, and so that's that's how I see that story. I see it as ethically wrong as a sin um, that many have been complicit and taken part of, and I also see it as a human rights violation. So, um, so this story is, is, for, is for the children who's, who still haven't found their families and for the parents who still haven't and I fear never will, will find their families again. There was just a news article yesterday, day before yesterday, that they now think more than 2,000 children will never be reunited. I don't understand how that's possible. <laughs> will never be reunited. Well, it, you say you you know do you, you wonder how that's possible. One of the things that comes up in at the beginning in this first scene is the list, right? This how difficult why why these lists weren't merged? Why I, I, I don't know how it's possible either. Is it a bureaucratic? Yes, that's, yes, that's part of the problem. Is it it was a bureaucratic, supposedly sin. a bureaucratic nightmare, um, but. But at a certain point, someone actually separates another child from a child from their mother's or their father's or their siblings' arms, and um, and so you know who who takes responsibility for that. So I think that I I think that not only are our leaders not only do our leaders have to take responsibility for that, but also the individuals who actually carried out those orders. I think that they must be living their own nightmares as well. Now, um, your, uh, the bulk of your work has been as a translator from mm -hmm. Spanish to English, and you, of course, are fluent in Spanish. Um, and I think the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the idea ultimately to have our version be largely in English as opposed to Spanish came from you, did it not? Yes. Right. Yeah. Can, can we talk about why we've because the in series has a history of doing uh, uh, opera in translation. Yeah. But ours, our suelas, we've always done with sung Spanish and spoken English, and that's a that's a dichotomy that I find really awkward and unconvincing. I mm -hmm. find it equally awkward when we do the magic flute with with English dialogue and some German. That doesn't make any sense to me. So my original idea was that we would do, which seems silly now, was that we would do um, those characters who are, and now there's only one left, but those characters who are gringos mm -hmm. speaking in, in English and the Mexican or Latin American characters speaking in Spanish. And you saw right away that that, that, that was a silly idea. So, so let's talk about maybe that decision and why we ended up deciding, okay, we're gonna do this piece in, in English mm -hmm. with, with Spanish accent, shall mm -hmm. we say. Well, Handel's piece was in English. And those lines, how long, O Lord, shall we be enslaved? Those lines really struck me. How Handel had this ability to, with his German sensibility, um, sound a certain sense of suffering in the English language. So that's that's one thing that that really struck me about that that his his oratorio. Um, as someone, well, first of all, I grew up speaking Spanish and English. My mom is Puerto Rican. I feel comfortable in both languages. 
Um, second of all, no matter it, when you translate work, translate is work in distance. And for me in particular, it's feeling completely comfortable with the fact that the, the existence of multiple languages together is actually a very painful thing. So English exists, we're speaking English now, not for felicitous reasons. People in Latin America speak Spanish and Portuguese for not felicitous reasons. They speak them because of very painful reasons. People migrate to new regions, not because they're happy, but because of hunger, because of genocide, because of um, political issues, economic issues. So I think you have to begin with the fact that every language, embedded in every language, is a geography, is a map full of the pain of those people and those experiences. And you're never going to be able to erase that. That will never go away. You just have to accept that it's there. For me, in this work, because it's a work in theater, I thought it was very important to have an immediate relationship with our audience that is largely an English-speaking audience. And I had no fear that I could express the level of pain that these characters and the complexity of their lives. I had no qualms about expressing that in English. Um, but are, you, are you saying that um, actually we have a perception that somehow it would be more authentic mm -hmm. um, in Spanish, but actually any language has equal inauthenticity to describe emotional truths. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if we do it in English versus Spanish. Well, languages do express things differently. And I, and I do believe, you know, when people talk about translation and ask me the question, well, is there th are there things that can't be translated or, you know, what? And I always think to myself, I, when I'm translating, I think, how am I going to sound this in English? I don't think to myself, how am I going to say this in English? I think, how am I going to sound it? For me, it's, that's what it's about. It's an issue of sound. And so my question was, how am I going to sound the experience of these individuals in this English language? And, um, and also, similarly, I wanted the audience to hear and feel that. And I knew that if we had an audience that was largely predominantly English speaking, that they were constantly going to be looking at the supertitles, trying to translate what, what, what was happening. And, um, and I wanted their physical and emotional experience to be very direct with what was happening. Now, that being said, it's a lie to think you have any direct access to the experience of another. Which and is something you articulate quite beautifully yes. in the first scene. That's right. So the entire first scene is a scene of translation. And for some reason, that's how the characters first came to me. And so that I finally just gave in to that and decided to do that. Um, so it's a lie to think that you have access to the other and that access is somehow unmediated. The fact is, it is mediated, and you will never fully know that other. Well, that's what I, I, I find so powerful about that first scene that I can't wait to experience, because when you read the script, 
uh, there are these long speeches in Spanish. I'm not a Spanish speaker, or in the native language of, of Paloma, and and I get frustrated and I skip them. But in a theater, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to have right. to sit there yes. and want to emotionally understand what this woman is 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 has been through and what she's describing, and you can't mm -hmm. until you get to the mm -hmm. translator. And then then you even don't know because. Mm -hmm. Do we trust the translator? Mm -hmm. Do, how good of a translator is she? There's always these questions mm -hmm. about how accurately we're, our empathy is. Mm -hmm. What, what, do you know, we always want to know something. And one of the most beautiful experiences, I think, in life could also just be accepting not knowing and, and just engaging with a work in, in different ways, in different sensorial ways. And so um, I think that's part of what's happening there. And then you mentioned this idea of trusting the translator. You know, you, you can't, what can you trust anyway? Yeah, precisely. Even when something is in your own language. It's, it's funny to me when people say, oh, well, uh, you know, the limits of translation. Okay, well, what about just the limits of language itself? Nobody well, knows I, half the of what of they're theater. saying. I've always found it, <laughs> I've always found it really ironic, amusing that in theater we tend to believe whatever someone on the stage is telling us. In, a, in an art form that's, that's entirely deceit, but we believe them. We find irony really difficult, especially in sung drama. We, we believe that a, a composer's always set the text as if the character's telling us the truth. Yes. We don't allow for the possible that the char character is lying to us. And of course, they're all lying to us because they aren't really Alma Viva or really um, whoever at all. Right. Um, as a company, I find that that's, it's, it's something that we struggle with. Myself as a, as a purist, as a snob, I'll admit, um, it breaks my heart not to do things in the original language because I know the composer chose notes based on certain sounds, based on certain syntax. But one has to ultimately figure out whether it's worth sacrificing that, and I would say it is, so that the audience can have as direct an experience as possible. Um, and we do all of our operas in translation for exactly that reason. And I ultimately, um, once you suggested doing this work in English, had to confront the hypocrisy of not doing zarzuelas, of, of con consigning zarzuelas to a place where you don't need direct emotional access, um, which of course is, is, is not what we will, should be doing if, we're, if we stand behind zarzuela as a relevant art form. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that new, that I, and I feel this way when I translate poetry, that that new poem or that new book, you know, if, if it's a collection of poems, right, that they, that, that needs to work, stand as a work of art in and of itself. So again, if you think about it, not in the sense of what is this person saying or what is this person trying to say, but if you think about it in the sense of how am I sounding this in this new, in this tar, it's not a new language, but this, in this case, the target new language. New sound world. Yeah, how am I sounding this? Then you can approach your problems differently. And so, um, and you can think about the word in that other language, the language in my case, which is English, as opening up different possibilities that weren't necessarily triggered by that word in the original language. So just to give an example to you, 
uh, one of the writers who I most translate is Raúl Zurita. And if you translate a word like world, so world could be earth, it could be sphere, mundo, mundo could be earth, it could be sphere. So I chose the word world in English because world comes to us from the Germanic word Welt. Welt also comes to us in English as welt. And so what that tells us in the word world is that for the Germanic mind, the world is an open wound. The world is a welt, right? And so the English word gives that etymology and also opens up to those beautiful sounds in a way that mundo does not. However, in, a, in the general work of an artist who is emphasizing a landscape that's receiving the disappeared in a world in which no one, no human was there to receive them, it really, the landscape really is an open wound. For our enslaved peoples, the landscape is an open wound. For soldiers who never make it back to their families, the landscape is an open wound. The battlefield, the landscape is an open wound. So the Germanic word accesses that meaning. And I always say that even if people consciously and immediately don't understand that. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, so people will say, okay, well, who knows that when they're listening to the world, to, to language. I do feel that they hear it, and I feel that we have deep embedded memories of meaning and language. And so, um, so I feel that somewhere in the mind, as an English speaker, you hear and you make a connection between world and welt. And, um, or even if you don't capture it in that, uh, in that moment, you may hear it in the resonance of sounds you're creating in other relationships, right? And so in the same sense that you dig into the dirt for the past and you know, a, 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 um, a sommelier sent, you know, smells and tastes the history of time and we have that capacity in our, in our tongues and our nasal passages, right? I believe that we have that same capacity with language. That, that you feel, you know what was happening in 1950 when that bottle of wine was made. You feel that same thing linguistically. What's complicated is when you're dealing in languages that have completely other, you know, like maya kakchikel, right? And so, so I included some lines of, of her language, of Paloma's language, in order to give the sense of a completely other model which is, is so other in, within this context that, that it just, you know, the, the officer says, what the fuck is she saying? And the answer is, I, have, I, I think she says, why did she take our child? And so that's the moment of complete unknowing. You know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a bottoming out of linguistic understanding. It's a bottoming out of cognitive understanding. And it's a complete bottoming out of an ethical mm -hmm. matrix that, um, that manages to comprehend how you could possibly take a child from a parent. Tell us, um, tell us about your favorite character. Because I know who your favorite I, character is. <laughs> one of my favorite characters somehow became this guard. Guard number two. Not even guard number one. Guard, guard not guard number, number one, guard number two. <laughs> guard number two became my favorite character in a scene in which the characters are talking about, well, who is the virgin of solitude? And it turns out that, the, that Oaxaca, 
which is a state in Mexico, um, has their the south. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, they have their their virgen. Um, their patron saint is the Virgin of Solitude, and so it's a nice coincidence. That's yes, a coincidence yeah. for us. Yeah, so their Virgin saint is the Virgin of Solitude, and so there's a character guard two who um, basically um, performs a biblical exegesis, <laughs> an analysis <laughs> of who of, of of Mary and and the Virgin of Solitude's feelings. So. What I mean by this is that on the one hand, you could say, well, Mary does what she's told. You know, she, she's told by God when she gets pregnant that she, this is going to be the son of God. You know, she accepts that her son will be killed. Um, and then I think that there's a flip side of that story, and I think it's a story of Mary's fury. And we never think of the fury that Mary might have felt along with her sorrow for her son's death. Um, and that fury is very maternal in the sense that the state as a, as a patriarchy takes away her son, but also God as a father takes away her son. And um, so for me, it's important to um, renew the possibility of a furious Mary and of mothers being furious regarding their sons being taken away, for example, to go fight in a war, um, or, or in this case, at the border. So, um, so, that's, so that's why I like the, the guard number two talks about how he can imagine Mary being furious because her beautiful son has just been killed. And, and she and she can't really understand why. And you've gifted him with an aria. That's oh yes. Not, that's not by Tom, Thomas Breton. No, Breton. no, he sings the song. There are actually several. There are several selections of music in our version yeah. that are not by Breton. And yeah. I wonder if you could talk about why they're there and why you chose what you chose. Yeah. So he sings a song called El Nito, which is by a composer called Mondragon from. Uh, from Oaxaca, and in this song, the um, the the poetic voice, the main char the character sings, you know, I'm from Oaxaca, and my patroncita de la soledad, she takes care of me. So uh, my Lola Michina takes care of me, of, of my body, and la Virgen de la soledad takes care of my soul. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other piece, um, well, we have Cielito Lindo, mm -hmm. And then the... Nacieto Lindo, um, I think for a lot of people, they take, take it for granted that it's ubiquitous, that everyone knows the song. Yeah. Um, but I have to admit, I didn't know the song. Um, so, so maybe mention, mention, mention what Cieto Lindo is about and Cie who Cie sings it in our piece. Uh, so um, here, uh, Susana ends up singing Cielito Lindo. It turns out Susana is also from Oaxaca. And Susana sings Cielito Lindo because she hears the song and is reminded of her family and is reminded of the fact that her grandmother used to sing her this song. And but she doesn't have an aria in the original version, so I think it's really no, she doesn't. That we've given her more substance in that way. Yes, and actually, none of the female characters have arias in the original work. Not. Susana, not Casta, Antonia does not, Rita. Uh, Rita does not have her own aria. So this really, the original work really is um, centered on the elderly character, 
who in the original work is called Ilarion, in our piece he's called Jack, Don Jack. He's the one gringo. He's the one gringo in the piece, that's right. And so uh, we really wanted to emphasize more the women characters and their experiences, and so she sings Cierito Lindo, um, because she's nostalgically thinking of, of her family. And she's a character who's been displaced from Oaxaca to Tijuana. Um, really due to, to NAFTA and, and the flooding of, uh, of Mexico with cheaper U.S. grains, which changes drastically her familial situation. And so she ends up, she and her sister Casta end up in Tijuana. Her father ended up um, as a laborer in the United States, and her mother has passed away. So, um, yeah, and then, and then the last piece is La Guacamaya. La Guacamaya is a son jarocho. Son jarochos are from the Veracruz, Veracruz and the Veracruz region on the, um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And La Guacamaya is a song about, um, I mean, there are many different possible verses, but the verses that we chose that were recommended by my very good friend, Chrissy Arce, um, she recommended these verses having to do with tiradores, and, and la guacamaya is a bird, and basically the song is don't, don't cross, um, if you do go through the fields, don't get, don't get shot by the tiradores, and tiradores are basically people who um, go to the border regions to shoot um, people who have crossed the border to oh. shoot migrants. So they're not actually um, border patrol agents or la migra. They're actually people who go just vigilante. to shoot. They're just vigilante people who go to the border region. So it's saying don't get shot by them and fly, fly away. And, um, and that also refers to a, a theme of, of flying in the mm -hmm. piece as a whole. So, so last, last question before we thank you for, for speaking with me today. Um, what's it going to be like to see it come to life on the stage? You, was was, was um, Cecilia the first time that you'd uh, written something and then watched it be developed no, by others so, on the stage? So in my early 20s, I also wrote for the theater. Okay. So um, the company I worked for in Italy was called Il Balletto di Spoleto, and I had adapted a... Medea, a Euripides Medea, mm -hmm. into a piece called La Straniera, and, um, and then also written a work called Tela di Ragno, which was based on um, the story of Arachne mm -hmm. and Athena in Ovid's Metamorphoses. So, um, do you know, it's interesting, with this piece in particular, um, there, there's definitely a sense of being nervous and are we going to pull it all together? But when we talked about this the other day, um, I'm so focused on the, the characters and who they represent. And these, on the one hand, the old story of Susana. And I'm also focused on, um, on Paloma's story and on children who haven't been, you know, this, this open wound we're experiencing right now. There are many open wounds, but this is one of them that this, that this piece is focusing on. So my hope is that um, we can adequately move people. If just one person comes and didn't feel empathy and leaves with empathy, then that's, that's meaningful. That's enough for me. Yeah, absolutely. 
So. Anna Dini Morales, thanks for coming by today. Oh, Timothy Nelson, thank you. <laughs> I hope we can we can do justice to the piece for you and also for the for the people you drew inspiration from. I'm, I'm sure you can. Thanks for joining us today for Into the In Series podcast. You can find out more on our website, www.inseries.org, on Facebook, which is backslash in series, or also download all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen. Again, La Paloma at the Wall opens March 23rd at Gala Hispanic Theater. We hope to see you there. <laughs>